0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our traditional Friday morning. It's, uh, it's become a, a quite a, quite an event, uh, well attended by all of you. We get over 200 people every Friday. Uh, and I know you've been missing, John, from uh, this Friday morning event. So hopefully you're having a your cup of coffee and you're ready for a uh, show of force with all kinds of information about COVID-19 vaccines, et cetera, and more. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We don't know what he's gonna have today. It's gonna be something interesting, I'm sure. Uh, but before we begin our series, I, uh, you know, I want to take a, just a couple of minutes to recognize the people that have brought this series to you. Uh, there's a lot of work that's done be- behind the scenes, behind the camera, if you may, uh, and and I think it is important for us to pause uh, and and let uh, just share with you who those people are, uh, and 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 recognize them. So I'm I'm going to hopefully not embarrass anyone here. I'm not, I'm going to ask, you know, first Liz Anderson to come up here, uh, and and I want to thank her for, uh, for keeping us, uh, you know, really uh, honest in all of this and organized. Uh, so we have, a, we have a plaque for her that says, uh, in recognition of your dedication and innovative spirit throughout a year of change and adversity, you helped to create a new virtual community that sustained our need for knowledge and comfort, for which we will always be grateful. Elizabeth Anderson, Office of Continuing Medical Education. And the quote from Maya Angelou, who I love, uh, you may not control all the events that happen to you, but you could decide not to be reduced by them. And you certainly have exemplified that. So on behalf of, of the leadership here at Connecticut Children's, we, we give you this plaque and, uh, and flowers. And thank you very much for everything that you have done. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, and uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Shriver to come up, not to speak yet, but you know, <laughs> and uh, Again, John, uh, you, uh, you came at a time that uh, you know, he was somewhere else and showed up in my life and uh, has made my, my world enormously easier with his executive expertise in infectious disease, calm demeanor, and sound advice to all of you. I think all of you would agree with me. And, and again, it's a, a similar plaque to you, uh, John Shriver, MD, M.P.H. And uh, John, this is, this is for you in recognition for everything that you have done uh, for the past 15, 16 months, and continue to do, and hopefully for a lot more, a lot more time than, than, than you probably want to. Uh, by that, I'm going to have you hopefully continue with us for, for a long time. The community is requesting you. I, I know that because I get emails every single day. Uh, I think Ken would, would agree with you're me. our rock star. Uh, so uh, thank you so very this much. So we have all of us, John. Thank this you. This is for you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and uh, and I, I accept this on part of the whole community, actually, who's driven
0: this. So thank you. Thank you, John. And, and then Nicole, who's not here because she chose to go on vacation today, we're going to recognize her. But but Nicole, you will see this on, on tape. Uh, and we have a plaque and flowers for you as well. She's enjoying a day on vacation with her three beautiful children and her husband and hopefully enjoying a beautiful sunny day. Uh, Nicole, thank you for what you have done for all of us. And we will give you this hopefully in the video next time where you're here with us so that's, and, uh, you know to, to, to recognize you. Uh, so yes yes uh, and uh and then behind the scenes uh, you know we have one more person and i think we can get him back here even though there's a risk that that you know things may things may crash and uh so steve is uh, here usually around six in the morning trying to make sure that the camera works uh making sure that you know that there are no glitches uh, and and again um uh, steve uh, again thank you for every morning uh, coming in and making sure that we that we stay on track uh you know you you can't imagine all the things he has to do behind the scenes to make sure that uh, Dr. Shriver can actually point to the right place to get him back in the same, you know, the middle of the of the of the, of the scene, uh, and for our grand rounds and just the whole year with uh, with a smile. Uh, this team for me here has been, uh, you know, something that makes me come to work every morning because they they make make us feel better, make us feel good, and has allowed uh, me and I know John and Ken uh, for for all of us to to remain positive throughout this pandemic. So. Uh, again, you may not control all the events that happen to you, especially the, all the video stuff, but you can decide not to be reduced by them, and you always keep us keep us on it. So, Steve, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
2: you, thank you Ken. Any, any last words? No, I, I was just going to comment also that when the pandemic started around a year and a half ago, there was so much that we didn't know. Those of us, like myself, a parent, a grandparent, and a pediatrician, we were really scared. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know much about this virus. And all of a sudden we had the ability to have a Dr. Schreiber and his supporting cast. And I was reading a book about Churchill at that time in World War II. And all I could think of was Churchill's talks about how difficult conditions were where he would tell the truth and he would offer lots of comfort or FDR in his fireside chats. Uh, Dr. Schreiber and his supporting cast has become our Friday fireside chat. There are over 200 people who look forward to this every single week, and it became the mainstay of helping us feel more comfortable with the horrendous and difficult situation. So we can't say more thank you to all of you. Thank you. Thank you, Ken.
0: And uh, you know, he was the creator of the of the plaques and the ideas with, with uh, Anna Maria Marianne, um, uh, he, uh, ken also has been behind the scenes uh every i don't know how he finds people but he i think he looks into the new york Times pages and he calls them personally i don't know how he knows all these folks but they actually show up uh even paul offit you know who's on uh, constantly on cnn and all the national media but he responds to him and he gets on our show so uh so ken thank you for for your leadership and for always you know staying staying on track on task for, for all the community really appreciate it okay so let's let's move on now to uh a couple of things, and then I'll let John. I know he's eager to get here and tell you all that he's learned this past week. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's getting answers there, but you know, I still have seniority over him. <coughs> uh, so the uh, on Friday, on Tuesday, June eleventh, uh, uh, we don't have the typical grand rounds, but I urge you to log in because we have our fellow and resident research awards, and we have four outstanding uh, fellows, two fellows and two residents that will be presenting. Uh, some really, really uh, cool research that they have done through through this year, the pandemic. Uh, I'll give you just one title, Kawasaki disease in the United States before and during the COVID era. And Tim Pandu, one of our uh, first year residents, uh, he's one of our interns, uh, who has uh, actually did a research and has got a paper ready to go and is going to tell you what happened to Kawasaki disease versus COVID using FIS data. So please join us. There there are three other uh, presentations on that day. Uh, and I know it's not your typical Grand Rounds, but I, I, I promise you, you will learn a lot and you'll be able to ask. And so join in, in congratulating our residents and fellows for the research they do. So after all that, uh, I want to make sure that Dr. Schreiber actually has a little bit of time for his presentation. So John, podium's yours.
1: Uh, thank you, Juan. And uh, thanks to everyone for the recognition. And As I said, I accept uh, any recognition in spirit of the entire community uh, who's been an incredible privilege of mine to work with during these difficult times, and certainly, what you think I've given you, I've received back from the community um, tremendously. So thank you. We actually have a lot to talk about today, and, and welcome. Um, let's see if I can get this to work. So we're we're not advancing. Here we go. So I want to talk to you about uh, first off. The, I think the message today is cautious optimism, but I. As you'd gotten to know me over the last year or so, I'm going to show you what I see and what I know, and and I think we continue to need to be careful. Uh, This is not done. It's certainly not done in the world, and uh, my goal is for the community to understand the data as we see it each week uh, and then make your clinical decisions and your personal decision based on fact and data and not on other ways that unfortunately are out there. Um, In the United States, we're below 15,000 new cases a day. Uh, This is really the best it's been almost since the beginning of the pandemic. It's tremendously positive news, but it's still thousands of cases every day all over the country. So if this was an influenza season, there'd be a lot of flu still. So we kind of need to step back and recognize we have continued transmission of this organism all through the country um, and different geographic regions. Good news, but we have work to do. Uh, This really needs to be in the hundreds across the country and it's not. Now, the deaths are declining and and we're down to a few hundred a day, uh, an incredible improvement from thousands a day, but it's still a few hundred a day. And again, same comment, Um, I would wanna drive this down to single digits and it's not. And so to me, this indicates the potential of continuing to have problems with this pathogen. Uh, We're not over this yet. Now, you can see across the United States, these are hot spots of transmission and um, red being bad, orange being second bad and and the lighter colors being better. You can see um, most of the country is in reasonable shape right now, except for North Texas and a whole strip up the uh, Upper West there. Through Wyoming and and uh, other states there uh, where there's very low immunization rates, uh, the southeast remains quiescent except for parts of Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia. But we'll talk show you some data. Louisiana has continued uh, significant transmission and under immunization. So um, we are vulnerable, and uh, we're in a nice summer mode right now. And it would be a shame to waste that and have a difficult winter again. So. We need to get more needles in arms uh, and this continues to be challenging. Uh, in Connecticut, um, remarkable improvements, the number of new cases um, by date, you can see it's really minuscule, um, much lower community transmission has dropped um, tremendous progress. I think if I could look on a national role model, it might be how Connecticut and parts of New England have responded to this pandemic. And now with success, our economy's reopening, our hospitals are not full. Um, This is the way to go. And you can see, remember, only three or four weeks ago, I showed you this Connecticut map, and it was all orange and red. Look at it now. We have clearly controlled community spread. There are one or two counties, maybe one county uh, where there's some uh, transmission that's active um, more than we would like. The test positivity rate is under 1%. This is where we dreamed that we would be uh, this summer, and we are. And again, a tribute to the entire community and the citizens of Connecticut who in general took this very seriously. We did what we needed to do to get this under control. Um, hospitalizations for COVID way down. Um, and we have in big capacity again in our ICUs. Uh, and again, good news, but you'll notice um, we still got hundred people with COVID in the hospitals across the state, maybe a little bit less now uh, this week. So uh, we got to keep watch on this, but we're in a much better place. Um, deaths in single digits this week, uh, one or two, uh, it's just a great place for us to be. And I'll show you why that is shortly, because it's our immunization rates and the high risk individuals. Um, This is, in fact, here's the slide. This is our success in immunizing elderly 65 and above who'd had one dose and 100% is those dark townships. I mean, we literally have many towns where almost every um, individual 65 and above has been immunized, tremendous success. We have a few townships that could do better uh, and we need to work on that, but this is the reason our death rate and hospitalization rate is way down. So yeah, vaccines work Uh, and you actually have to use them, but they work. And so, uh, these data should be on every governor's desk in the country and they should be emulating what happened here. And in the 15 to 44 age group, a, a younger age group, we're actually doing pretty well with immunizations. This is young adults, except for the far Eastern part of the state and which needs some attention and a couple of our big cities. So um, important, we have some gaps. We still have work to do in this state. This uh, came from the uh, DPH presentation just a couple of days ago. We are moving towards 80% of Connecticut having at least one dose of vaccine. Um, 4 million doses administered, 2.2 first and almost 2 million second doses. Remarkable and again, among the best in the world. Uh, for our vaccine coverage. And it's why those graphs I showed you have improved so much. And um, the trick's going to be to watch carefully, to see a variance of their breakthroughs and, and immunize or under and really not stop our momentum. If you stop now, it's like the end of the race. I, I think I showed you a few months ago, it's a marathon. We're in the last quarter mile and you just stop the race. No, you don't, you keep running because we have work to do. And, and unfortunately, there's part of the country who stopped the race. Now this is very important, Connecticut lags in immunizing young adult minorities. Uh, This is um, at least one dose of vaccine coverage and you can see percents on the left. And then this is by date, it's going up, but particularly African-American residents, 16 to 34 are under immunized. We need, and and Latinos as well compared to whites. And so we need to address this, you know, whether it's Vans this summer Uh, going to neighborhoods or or youth areas or basketball courts or whatever. We need to address this and fix this by the end of the summer. So come fall, we don't have this community having an outbreak again. So we've had great success. We have work to do. Now, the United States, remarkably, despite all of the dysfunctionality over the last year and a half, you know, we've done a pretty good job. So we have 303 million doses of vaccine have been given to people in the United States. 140 million are fully vaccinated despite all the radio static and politics and you name it. You know we're moving in the right direction. So if you look at the columns there you can see 52% of the population has gotten at least one dose and 42% are fully immunized and you'd like to be around 70% having one dose and 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 up a bit. You know it's going to take we're we're Running into a little bit of a brick wall, our vaccination rates have dropped off. And I think the urgency some people feel has dropped off as well, but I'll show you some data. And, and again, as we get out there and give clear messages to our patients, providers, and population, uh, I think we will improve across the country, but the messages have to be clear. Now, um, you'll see, remember, um, when you look at total population, it's a little deceptive because we haven't licensed the vaccine yet for kids under 12. So these numbers are actually a little bit better for um, those who are uh, able to get the vaccine. Our numbers are pretty good. Um, And that's there. You can see percent of population 18 and above who've gotten immunized. 63% of the United States gotten one dose and 53% of those who could get immunized uh, are fully vaccinated. This is not bad. Uh, And so, uh, and ditto, if you look at aged, uh, elderly in the United States, 86% have gotten one dose, 75% fully vaccinated. This is why our death rate and the ICUs in the United States are not filled anymore. So I think this has been a success. Uh, You can always look for flaws and we have work to do, but I think we can be proud of this. We just have more work to do. Um, New England um, leads the United States in doses per 100,000 administered. Let's look at this map. Uh, New England has been very successful and I don't think it's because we're any less ornery than anywhere else in the country. I mean, you go to northern Maine it's strong accents and, and stubborn people and ditto with Massachusetts and Connecticut everywhere. I think the messaging of the government and the healthcare industries and the hospitals and the medical schools has been very consistent. People appreciate that and in general respond to that. And I think you can see the, re- the result has been New England is in a good situation right now. This is not true in the Southeast, where there's a market underimmunization at multiple age groups, and that is going to affect the entire United States because come fall, if they're underimmunized and a new variant comes in, we're going to have a lot of infected people in that geography, and that will spread. So um, we have work to do, and, and I'm not exactly sure. I guess I would sit down with all those governors and show them the data and uh, do whatever I needed to do at the federal level to assist them to improve these immunization rates. It doesn't help when state legislatures do political posturing. You may have watched on TV in Ohio where I used to live, uh, Dr. Tenpenny, I don't remember exact name, uh, a doctor got up in front of the Ohio State Legislature and said, if you take the COVID vaccine, you will be magnetized. And and I don't know if there's some, I've had the vaccine. Is there some metal, somebody here? I actually do have some metal. That is magnetic, and I will tell you. Okay, I'm not. It's not possible to get magnetized from this vaccine. But there were actually legislators in the audience when she was talking. Oh, they were clapping. They thought it was like, so you know, with that kind of craziness out there, we need to be unrelenting and sharing facts calmly without judgment, and just saying, look, it's not magnetic. Chips don't fit in it. Uh, you can show that slide again. It's so on online. You know, the the my, the smallest NSA microchip can't fit through the needle. Uh, you know, we just have to be consistent because that stuff is just churning out there, and you can see it's affecting our immunization rates. This will affect New England come winter if we don't get this under control. Now, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So, I've been looking around counties that are under immunized and looking to see, are we showing problems? The answer is yes. This is Lamb County, Texas, where you can see, let's see, my pointer works. Um, There, you can see they are in the middle of a surge. Their uh, immunization rate is 29% vaccinated. Uh, They have an enormous surge underway. uh, And so far deaths and hospitalizations aren't up, but that will change. Uh, and the elderly are under immunized there as well. So, you know, this is going to happen in pockets across the country where we have not efficiently um, gotten people immunized. And so we'll have to be very careful and keep watch. And, you know, ditto when you look at some of the counties and age groups in Connecticut, we've got to get that uh, taken care of. And the test positivity rate in Lamb County is 7%. That tells you the next few weeks are going to be bad for them. That's going to continue to increase. Ours is 0.7%. So. Big difference. Alabama, similarly, um, 29% are fully vaccinated. Only 36% have gotten one dose. We're twice that in Connecticut. And you can see there's a 27% increase in cases in the last week. And if you watch closely, you'll, you'll see that surge starting there. Let's hope that that's blunted because there's just enough people either have had the disease or immunized that this is blunted. But this is, worries me, and it's the kind of thing we might see in the under-immunized parts of the United States. Worldwide, the pandemic continues, but it's a little bit better. India has sort of burned out. It was a horrible outbreak. It's, it's not as bad as it was because I think so many people either got sick, got ill, died. I mean, it's been terrible there. Um, but you will see that South America um, remains a problem. Parts of Africa we don't even have data on. We know there's a lot of transmission there. The EU is better except for um, one or two of the Scandinavian countries. So uh, we have work to do uh, and uh, we will continue to have spread of variants until uh, this is improving. And and I do think the United States is starting to come to the plate as are other wealthy countries. Um, It's an uphill battle to immunize the rest of the world. You'll see immunization rates very good in the US and Canada China, we think. Russia, we have no idea. The EU is getting better. Uh, But you'll see that Africa and huge parts of South America are under immunized, as is Asia, particularly Southeast uh, Asia and the Indian subcontinent. So um, we we need to get going on this. It's going to generate more cases. Uh, The announcement of 500 million doses the United States will manufacture for these countries uh, was great news to hear. And I, I hear that the EU is going to equal that. So you're talking about 1 billion uh, immunization doses getting out there by the end of the summer. This is great news. Now we are seeing some changes in the disease. The CDC announced that um, hospitalization, so the disease has moved younger. Remember I showed that to you uh, uh, a few weeks ago, the elderly uh, not as bad now, and this has been pushing down to younger, particularly adolescent age groups who are under immunized. Still, we're just starting that vaccine rollout a few weeks ago. So if you look at laboratory confirmed COVID-19 in this age group in 14 states, um, it looks like there is more severe disease occurring in the adolescents. The rate has gone up. uh, and These are the data um, uh, from 0.6 to 1.3. It's doubled. And some of them are ending up in the ICU. However, the um, death rate is extremely low. There are no deaths associated. That's the silver lining. But we're seeing more adolescents admitted, sicker, ending up in the ICU, but the death rate is still uh, very, very low. So key, we need to keep watch on this. I have no idea if this represents variants. Again, our uh, surveillance for variants has been relatively um, uh, uh, less than it needed to be, uh, but I know they're looking at it. Impact of vaccination on household transmission. We're starting to get really good data about these vaccines. This is actually with the um, AstraZeneca vaccine. In England, they looked at, if you got immunized, did you stop the household transmission? Because if you could do that, that would really stop the pandemic, um, a lot of the driving of the pandemic. And in fact, immunization dramatically reduces SARS-CoV-2 transmission in families. And this is without immunization, you have a lot of transmission. This is the reduction in transmission uh, by about uh, 60%. Uh, with, with immunized, but it's a mixture of Pfizer uh, and AstraZeneca vaccine. Whoops, let's go back if I can. So uh, good news, um, immunization reduces transmission in families. We thought that was true. The CDC has allowed behavior that suggests it's true. These are data that confirm and back up of the CDC recommendations. If you're exposed in the family, you're unlikely to transmit. Now, vaccine breakthrough, um, I mentioned last week, I think it's recorded, if you didn't get to see it, there's been about 10,000 documented vaccine breakthroughs with the RNA vaccines. It's probably twice that. Uh, About 200 deaths, mainly in 80 years and above. But we got to figure this out because we need to understand this represent the individual's immune system. Is it a variant? What's going on? This is a very small number of patients from New York but they followed two patients who were vaccine breakthroughs. I'm just going to show you one of them. And you can see, I'm, I'm going to show you the antibody titers. This, these are um, neutralizing antibody titers, right? These are all the people. And you can see uh, after six months of infection, after your infection, your titers fall off. We know that. And, and you know, we think you may be susceptible to get reinfected, but um, this is after two doses of vaccine here. And this is the patient who had a breakthrough infection had quite high post-vaccine neutralizing antibody titers. So that was interesting. So they went and looked at, they actually did isolate the virus and they, they found that it had the E484K mutation and three other previously unreported mutations. So we know we're cranking out new variants in domestically in the United States. And at least some of them appear to evade good neutralizing antibody titers. This is compelling evidence for us to accelerate our immunization efforts because it's a very small number who are breaking through. And if most people don't, you can prevent transmission of a variant that might be resistant to the vaccine. So um, very important. Another reason as we look people in the eye to say we need to immunize more, it's not all about you. It's about preventing this pandemic from taking off again this winter. now this is uh, really interesting. Uh, those of you who are, who are hopping on airplanes were immunized. It's great, right? I, I want to go somewhere. We booked a trip for 2022. I want you to know that Feel, feeling that that if it's not better by then, I'm going anyway, okay? Um, but uh, this shows this is a great study. In, in Qatar, they screened all passengers arriving and got all their immunization history and past infection history, and did PCRs on 250,000 people coming into the country. It's quite amazing. And, um, and uh, they found, uh, despite being adequately immunized, a very small percent of those arriving were PCR positive. And um, in fact, this is the flow sheet, uh, 261,000, it's a little small, I apologize, but I want you to look at the arrow there. Those are the people with immunization history thousands, 31,000, and 195 were PCR positive. Now, you may have read in the paper today, there's a cruise ship that had everybody immunized on it, and there were two positives on the cruise ship were asymptomatic. So this we know this. So this documents that most people who are immunized are not going to asymptomatically transmit and acquire the organism, but a very small number could. So we know this, but now we have documentation of that, and again, it makes You know, be cautious. If you are immunized, it is still possible for a very small number of us to acquire the infection asymptomatically, probably transmitted to the unimmunized. The good news is on this cruise ship where they were too positive, everybody was immunized. It didn't spread as far as we know. So again, another reason for us to immunize as many as possible. I thought this was a great study in Qatar. I mean, the PCR's in 250,000 people with a documented history of immunization or not. Now, the Novavax vaccine, keep watch, that will be probably in front of the FDA shortly. Remember, that's a recombinant vaccine that has purified the spike protein. Uh, It's not um, an mRNA vaccine. It's actual protein. And the data have now come out from South Africa where they found uh, if you uh, were not infected with the South African variant, it was pretty, pretty protective uh, in the 70s to 80s. However, if you were infected with the South African variant, the uh, protection declined to the 50s and 60s. It's not bad, but it's not as good as it should be. So we'll have to keep watch on this. Um, the B1351 variant is not dominant in the United States, but it's definitely here. When this vaccine is released, we'll have to watch carefully to see if we get breakthrough infections with people infected with this, this variant. Those of you who um, maybe watch the news or the the not-so-news or the radical um, news uh, know that masks don't work, right? They've never worked. I'm going to show you some very interesting data. The fact is they do work. And here's yet another paper showing that they work. And in this paper, you can see, again, I apologize, a little small, particularly down here, N95s literally are 100%, almost 100% effective, but the surgical masks here are quite good in preventing uh, COVID-2 transmission, uh, SARS-CoV-2 transmission. So, uh, yet another evidence-driven paper, very good data showing that masks have been effective in reducing the transmission. Nothing's 100%. Actually, the N95 is close, but um, th- they work. So, when you see disinformation, we should be able to show uh, these data. What about patients with cancer? I continue to get questions from both patients and cancer doctors about protective efficacy of the COVID vaccines. This is a paper from Cancer Cell, a very good paper, just published, showing that first off, the mRNA vaccines are better than the J and J vaccine for cancer patients. So, um, just that's out there. In addition, um, if you had uh, a transplant your likelihood of seroconverting is only 70%. So great, if you've been transplanted with stem cells, stem cell transplant, uh, you're possibly are not gonna seroconvert when you get the vaccine. But if you're at hematologic cancer and you're better, 85% uh, were protected and 98% of solid tumor patients seroconverted after immunization and did fine. So now this is just anti-spike protein IgG. They did not measure neutralizing antibody. That's gonna be their next study but it's promising that most of our cancer patients are going to make anti-spike IgG and that we should immunize them. So more data to come in the coming months, but this is very promising. And this is a cartoon that shows uh, their results. you got a high antibody response, particularly in solid people with solid tumors, they did great. Um, if you had uh, you got a lower antibody response, particularly with stem cell transplantation in the past and CAR T-cell therapy, uh, anything that gives you sort of this chronic uh, hyporesponsiveness is not quite as good, but it was still 60-70%, so it's not, it's not zero. It's still good. Now, um, myocarditis. Um, we personally uh, at Connecticut Children's have seen a number of cases of young adults, mostly men, late teenage, uh, after their second dose coming in with acute myocarditis, pericarditis with bump in their troponins. Everyone's gotten better quickly. This is an ACIP bulletin uh, showing that um, they looked at data from the VAERS uh, vaccine follow-up data and concluded that in fact, there is a higher number of observed myocarditis post-immunization than is expected from background. We need to be transparent and honest about it. Still not a lot of cases. I believe it's 450 nationally out of millions of doses, but it is there and it appears to be more than background signal. There's another um, uh, post-vaccine follow-up that did not show this increase. The ACIP is meeting again to go over all these numbers and come out with formal advice about myocarditis post-immunization. That said, given the negative outcome of actual infection, including myocarditis and other illnesses, this vaccine is still indicated in that age group because getting native disease might even be worse in these kids in terms of their illness. So, but I want to be aware and be transparent that there does appear to be a higher than expected number of myocarditis cases from one of our post vaccine follow-up, databases, uh, from the two dose MNRA vaccines, age 16 to 24, mostly males. Now, you may remember, a year and a half ago, we're, we're learning a lot about this virus. This slide a year ago had, was really simple. It had the virus and it had the ACE2 receptor. I should, have, I should have pulled the old slides, couldn't find it. That's all we knew. Now we know a lot more. We know the importance of the ACE2 receptor. But in fact, there are other receptors that interact with SARS-CoV-2. It has membrane fusion to get in the cell. Uh, There are enzymes involved uh, that allow the virus to replicate. So we now have multiple targets for drug therapy and probably for second generation vaccines that will allow us to um, go after this virus. A lot of new data, you can see the complexity, this is just the virus interacting with getting into one of our cells that's ACE2 receptor positive. Um, I think we're going to see tremendous uh, new data coming out that will help guide therapies and second-generation vaccines. But a year ago, it was simply the virus and the ACE2 receptor in the cell, and and that's all we knew. We've come a long way. Now, I want to talk about misinformation. Um, This just happens to be about face masks, but it's also about vaccines. This was in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine. Um, These medical people who were actually IT gurus as well, began to do a deep dive into Facebook and try to understand how misinformation, and they chose face masks in one paper. How is this being generated? So there was this Danish paper that showed that face masks worked about 50% better than nothing. That's what the data were. It was actually not bad. And the reason it was only 50% is 50% 50% of the people admitted they never wore them. OK, it was 40, 47% of the people didn't actually wear the mask. So that was the paper. It's not. So what's happened is that bots or auto automated software are deliberately being used on Facebook linked to this paper to disseminate disinformation. Thousands of bots. So these are fake Facebook accounts that link to this paper and then generate messages as if it's from a person. Well, I knew this. And it's it's um, obviously malicious or from a foreign government or from internally. Uh, it's remarkable. This is a deliberate disinformation campaign. And let me show you what's linked. So we have automated software accounts on Facebook doing this. They actually discovered them. They could not track them back. Facebook can do that. We cannot. And this is an example of what was linked. So Remember, this is that one Danish paper. You can go look at it. It showed a 50% reduction in infections if you wore a mask. But they had a really low prevalence rate, and half the people wouldn't wear their masks. So it's not a great paper. So they looked at conversations on Facebook. They looked at automated misinformation, and they determined the, the bots. And this is what was linked. So um, it appears that not only wearing a mask does not provide protection, but it leads to an increase in infections with other respiratory viruses. That's linked to this paper. It's not factual. The Dana study proves the ineffectiveness and harmfulness of wearing a mask. That's not correct. It's not in that paper, but this is automatically linked. Anytime that paper is pulled up on Facebook, this is driven by an automated software. Um, corporate fact checkers are lying to you. All this serves their dystopian agenda, blah, 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 conspiracy stuff that's shooting out when this paper is pulled. This is controlled by politicians to impose their behavior in all public spaces. The scientists are paid by world elites to lie to billions of people. Juan, I'd love to see that paycheck. Uh, it hasn't come yet. I don't know what elite we're talking about, but I'm not getting those checks. But this, that's being linked to this paper. And the recommendation where surgical masks and other public health did not reduce the rate of infection among carriers and community with modest infection rate, that is erroneous. It reduced it by 50%. That's not correct. So um, this is uh, a very aggressive campaign. Ditto bots on vaccines. The same thing's happening with COVID vaccines. I cannot tell you whether this is from a foreign government or whether this is internal from malicious people or what, but we need to be aware this is happening and we need to be able to look people in the eye and tell them this is happening. And then you could pull up the study and say, look, the study actually doesn't show that. But we—this ha- is work for us. We cannot let this go. This is very important for us to address. It's driving our vaccine hesitancy as well. I didn't show you the vaccine bots. It's similar stuff. So uh, this is from Infowars. I look at it every week to amuse you and share it with you. But I think the latest one is that the use of the vaccine is actually a Nuremberg war crime. Uh, and that uh, Dr. Fauci, um, Bill Gates, and others should be tried for war crimes for pushing this dangerous vaccine and masks that don't work. And what's the first thing the US should do now that COVID 19 is confirmed as a Wuhan bioweapon? Arrest and prosecute Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates. I, I know they both directly went to China and cloned the vaccine. I mean, it's crazy stuff. People believe this, it is out there and it's being pushed hard. Um, And you know, whether it was engineered in Wuhan or not, I I don't really think Bill Gates or Fauci had much to do with that. But, and then Houston Methodist um, is ordering you to withhold adverse reactions after you get COVID vaccine. You may be aware that's a hospital that has mandated COVID and there's a hundred people who are refusing to do it or 170 people and it's reached the news and all this stuff. So this is not correct, by the way. Um, So uh, that's, this is the latest on Infowars. And by the way, along the Nuremberg, you can see um, the individual running this website is trying to sell his vitamins to you. Okay. So don't think this is a public service. doing. This is all about making money, right? This is all about making money. It's very sad. And then um, here's another great paper to show all our patients, Cleveland Clinic, ninety-nine 99%, percent, 99.7% of anybody hospitalized since January were unvaccinated so if you're vaccinated you're really really unlikely to get hospitalized and so again another reason uh, to get the vaccine these are great data um, and so that's another thing to show our community so the good the bad the ugly pandemic year two um, the usa is in good shape getting better uh, rapid decline of some hot spots new england is in good shape uh, we have i just We all live for the day where we would have improvement like this. 52% of the population is immunized um, and it's going up every day, but not as fast as we would like. Connecticut's immunization levels have peaked. We're really among the best in the the USA and the world. We lag in young adults, Latino and African-American immunizations. We've got to fix that. The Southeastern USA is significantly underimmunized. It's a time bomb waiting to happen with variants coming in uh, um and we're going to need to address it. Vaccine hesitancy appears to be deliberately encouraged uh, with misinformation on social media platforms. Maybe next time I'll show you the bots and what they're pushing out. Automated software is pushing out about the vaccines. And the worldwide pandemic continues, especially in parts of Southeast Asia, South America. Our commitment of 500 million doses um, and starting to have leadership in this along with the EU, uh, to immunize countries that can't afford it is critical. Um, I'm actually very excited that we've moved to this point, and uh, I, I think that will help a lot. And we're clearly in a race to immunize to prevent emergence of more vaccine-resistant variants. And that New York study showing that one vaccine failure had three new mutations and one mutation we already knew about uh, is a warning sign for us to immunize because the less people who, who would have this breakthrough infection, the more likely we will be safe. So that's what I had to share with you today, and we have time uh, for our questions.
0: Thank you, uh, John, for a, a very, very informative presentation. So, and, and we have, know a, a, that's surprising, we have a number of questions. Uh, John, can you describe the myocarditis, pericarditis syndrome seen in teens and young adults post-vaccine and, and help us explain to parents why their teens should still get the vaccine?
1: So what we've been seeing, um, and in the couple of papers I've read, there have been some reports. Um, uh, we're seeing a previously healthy, usually male, age 12 to 17 age group, sometimes a little older. Uh, after the second dose, maybe four to seven days, after they get some chest pain, a short, little shortness of breath, they come into the ED, um, and you, their troponins are mildly elevated. Uh, and uh, they may or may not have some conduction abnormalities indicating inflammation. Uh, All of them have gotten better. Uh, We've been giving IVIG and steroids to most of them. I don't have data to support that. That's what we've been doing because it seems to work well with these inflammatory syndromes with MISI. Everyone's gotten better. Uh, And across the country, similar things. Uh, We have one woman, one young woman who's presented. And interestingly, um, she had previous viral myocarditis two years ago presented after her second dose with a little bit of heart irritation as well. And so, so I'm hypothesizing for you a number of different scenarios. Is it possible that these very small number of individuals actually had previous myocarditis uh, and we didn't know about it? Uh, and the vaccine causes irritation and inflammatory response to the vaccine, which is your normal immune response. And that somehow uh, it, you know, exacerbates a pre-existing uh, issue. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, Could it be they had previous COVID that we don't know about? And and that's why they're having this robust response that's cardiac specific. I don't know the pathophysiology. Um, And it's also possible that at least some of the cases are not vaccine related. We have enterovirus in the community again. We actually have RSV, stuff's happening again. It's possible there's another virus out there that could be part of this background. We, We just don't know, there's a lot of unknowns. I think the way to manage that with parents is complete honesty. Um, And I will quote actually a parent I just had of one of our cases who happens to be a nurse and actually was uh, tremendous thinking out with me about this whole issue of vaccinating her her child. And she said, you know, I've really been thinking about this. Her daughter was getting better. She had a bump in her troponin. She had some chest pain. She'd been vaccinated a week before. And she said, look, you know, as I read this, I'm not happy about this, but I got to tell you, I'm really worried What if, you know, we are genetically predisposed uh, to have a more serious response to these COVID antigens? What if my daughter had gotten natural infection? She could have been one of those kids who got in the ICU or got messy or got severe carditis and and very sick for months and months. So, you know, I'm thinking it's probably better she get vaccinated so she didn't get native disease. uh, And uh, we'll have to figure out what we're going to do. If a booster comes up, we'll have to discuss it. And I said, totally agree with you. I thought this was fantastic thought process for a parent. And that's sort of where I would, as we discussed with parents, that's sort of where I would land uh, with it. Um, And and again, honesty and transparency, it's a very small number of cases, Again, millions of doses given 400 cases nationally reported. So, you know, it's not something that's going to be common.
0: Uh, Next question from Dr. Ramirez, Uh, any thoughts of current length of immunity after COVID vaccination? Most of us are six months out from vaccination, booster vaccine in the fall winter question. So, length of immunity and revaccination?
1: I mean, uh, that's a great question. And and, um, as we've gotten data, I've tried to share that with you. Remember that unfortunately, the vaccine's only X number of months old. So, so far uh, it appears that six months is fine. There's a lot of neutralizing antibody. Most people remember there are also memory cells. I did show you some of those data. There are memory cells circulating still. So I'd say we probably have a a year's worth of protection that we know about. I'm I'm just going out on a limb um, in terms of other respiratory virus vaccines. Um, uh, you know, are we going to need a booster come next year to cover variants and to bump us up? probably um, uh, and we'll see how that goes. So it's a good question, but I, I'm pretty confident we'll be good through the fall and winter, I'm six months out as well. Um, but we need to watch this and we'll need to continue to get data from people every month. It’s a new infection and the vaccine's only been given out for six or seven months. So right now its still we still have immunity. We’ll have to see in a year, year and a half
0: next one an interest, interesting question, commentary. Uh, it, we seem not to take into account those who have gotten the disease. They have a re- robust immunogenic response for 10 months and should be included in the numbers contributing to herd immunity.
1: Absolutely, and I, I think I agree with you. So the, the comment is a pre- previously infected people are contributing to herd immunity. I would agree. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that New England is in such good shape, and it's frankly one of the reasons the country at 50% immunization rate Uh, you know, depending on the geography is doing well. So if you figure 20% of the people nationally, depending on geography, you know, it's very different depending on which part of the country. If 20% of the people got infected and are still immune and another 40, 50% are getting immunized, we probably are reaching a herd immunity level. I completely agree. Um, I I think I've reiterate though, as I think back on on, um, some of the damage from this pandemic had we not done our mitigating measures and we had 90% of the people had gone through natural infection, we would have had a couple of million deaths and the hospitals would still be busting at the seams in the ICU. So I think absolutely though, it should be considered. I I do believe it's one of the reasons we're in better shape with all the immunization than the numbers might indicate is we had some pre-existing herd immunity. It's a good point.
0: Uh, from Neil Stein, uh, should we start reporting the case rate for vaccinated persons separately from unvaccinated persons in addition to case rate for the entire population?
1: It's it a great point. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic teased that out. Um, I think it's a great point. We should be.
0: An interesting question, commentary. Clearly, the vaccine is not magnetic, so that's good. I think we all agree with that, but there's other vaccines. There's other evidence to which we have not paid attention. The increase in young male vaccines getting myocarditis, which I think you just addressed that, John. Uh, I believe in Israel they have a study since they vaccinated all their upper school children showing 25 times the amount of myocarditis. Um, And then the commentary is the fact that Pfizer had statistics to show that those who have had the disease don't gain any immunity from the vaccine beyond our natural immunity.
1: Well, I, let me, let me, so I did show you last week, if you pull, if you hadn't seen it, um, the data you're talking about are, are really intriguing and I think will guide our immunization strategy. So what they showed was that um, if you had been previously infected, one dose after one dose of vaccine, you had the same titer as an uninfected person with two doses of vaccine. So what I get from that is If you have documented previous infection, in my opinion, it's not CDC approved, this is not what the government's doing. In my opinion, one dose will lead to protection for you if you've been previously infected. Those data seem pretty clear. I think that's what you're talking about. So I do think at some point that could inform our vaccine strategy and probably save some doses and probably save some some of the more overly vigorous um, immune response after two doses of somebody previously infected. Those data look really good. So again, two doses, uninfected, it's pretty much the same as a previously infected in one dose in terms of neutralizing antibody tire.
0: Yeah, but I, but I do want to comment, uh, sort of a follow up, that the the system actually works. The VARES and all the other reporting systems, uh, and I think with transparency, uh, because it's not driven by the CDC or the government; it's driven by us, the pediatricians. I mean, we started seeing this, we reported it, we went we went to DPH. This went all the way to uh, you know to CDC from our reports. And now the ACIP is meeting and saying there's a there's an uptick, just like you showed for myocarditis. So I think the the system is robust. It works. It, it, I don't think there's anything that's been hiding from the public. And that's really important.
1: I totally agree, Juan. And one of our jobs as providers, parents, whoever who's an informed community is to lean into this and say yes. Now, I will say the question I'm getting from some of the parents, who the small number who've had myocarditis, what do we do when the booster comes? And I said, I want to talk to you before you get the booster. I believe that is correct. And we need to talk to any child who's had a post-vaccine, we think might be post-vaccine inflammatory disorder that we carefully, at that point, when a booster is coming, we talk that out and figure out if that's the right thing for that child or not.
0: Uh, What do you know about any plans for the booster dosing? That was sort of a follow-up to that question.
1: (laughs) I know Moderna and Pfizer uh, both uh, have a potential booster, and it's including a number of variants, including, I know they're Alpha, Beta, Delta. Now, I don't remember that. Frankly, it is what it is, but the South African variant and the Indian variant others are being included. I don't know the timing on that, and I don't know. I I assume it's going to be a single dose. That would be the smartest thing, in my opinion. Uh, the other point I want to make: both Moderna and Pfizer are um, the studies in younger kids under the age of 12 are ongoing. Uh, those data should be around September, October, and uh, it's possible we may have emergency use use authorization and for younger children come late fall. So, so that's down the pike. We'll see what the data show. There shouldn't be emergency use if there's a problem with it. Let's watch the data. And to Juan's point. Uh, Those are public meetings. They present the data. You can do screenshots of the data and take a look. I've been going through, try to sit through all of them. Uh, They've been extremely transparent and open. So when we're ready for smaller kids, I think all of us in the pediatric community probably need to sit in on those FDA hearings and look at the data so we can talk to parents about it.
0: From uh, David Kroll, as always great presentation, John. Uh, One more thing for all of us who care for kids, remind colleagues, parents, and patients to make sure all kids are caught up on their routine childhood immunizations. During the pandemic, routine childhood vaccine administration has declined. It's time to catch kids up unless we put kids at risk for other infectious diseases. Uh, Thank you, John. See recent publication, and it's in the drop. uh, It's an MMWR publication. So
1: it's a critical point. Um, The routine immunization rate has dropped during the pandemic. We have unimmunized kids out there for, you know, Hib, uh, pertussis, you name it. Um, And the worst thing that we could do to our children would be to have an outbreak Potentially causing death and illness in kids that's vaccine preventable. I am concerned, however, that the anti vaccine disinformation is spilling over into regular pediatric vaccines that have decades of safe experience. And we need to be vigilant in that. Um, you know, the polio IPV vaccine is safe. Uh, there's still a little bit of polio bouncing around different parts of the world. It would be really unfortunate if we had whooping cough, a couple of cases of polio, you name it. So we're going to need to look people in the eye and say, you can put COVID over here, but those pediatric vaccines have decades of experience and it prevents death and illness in children. And we need to keep with that. So I, it's a great point, uh, David, and I, I one in which I'm very worried, actually, we're going to run into some interference with that.
0: Dr. Altman, I think he's calling calling us out. For Dr. Schreiber, Juan is not wearing a mask. Ken is not wearing a mask. Why are you still wearing a mask?
1: I'll tell you why. So it's a great point. Um, I do wear a mask, and, uh, and uh, I tend not to shake hands still. And the way I look on it is, if you look at the break, again, data-driven, there were 10,000 breakthrough infections. They're mostly in older people, okay? And the deaths were in 80 and above. So I'm a little older, and I'm six months out. I'm not 40 years old where I'm confident, you know, my neutralizing antibody titers are probably not gonna be as great as, a, as these healthy young people in the audience here. So I'm a little more cautious. I, I don't really wanna test um, my neutralizing antibody titers against a positive case. When I, so I only wear a mask when I'm indoors. If I'm outdoors, I don't worry about it. I think the data are very clear. I think um, if I were a healthy 40 year old uh, post-immunization, I'd be a lot less concerned. So that's why it's, you know, again, it's based on age. Uh, And uh, and also my spouse is high risk, so I I tend to be cautious.
0: Five that we are wearing the mask. It is just when I was on. I was at the podium. Uh, I was at the podium. I I took it off for the for the presentation. Uh, Yes, we are. We are wearing masks. We follow the rules.
1: You know, we, we're, when I'm speaking and these people are 25 feet away, um, uh, we're comfortable doing that. And we have very good, there's vents going and the whole thing. No, no, no,
0: no. Mask behind the scene here, so that just yeah. so that you know. So thank you, Arnie, for calling us out. Um, Jennifer Twatchman, uh, is there data on the rate of adverse reactions in people who previously had COVID versus those who did not have COVID before being vaccinated? You know,
1: I, I, it's a great question. Uh, it's anecdotal. I, there probably is. I just haven't seen it. Uh, anecdotally, it appears that some people with previous infections seem to have a more vigorous, um, uh, reaction after the second dose, but I, I can't show you those data and it's, a, I'll look for next time. Okay. I'll see if I can actually find a paper that's done that. It, so far, I haven't been able to find that. Great, great question.
0: There are uh, questions we're not gonna get through. Uh, uh, What is the current timeline for vaccine approval for babies and young children?
1: I mentioned, so uh, Moderna and Pfizer generating data starting now this summer. Uh, They've already enrolled kids down to, uh, depending on the vaccine, I think some down to six months, but two is the age I've heard. I think we'll have the data in September, uh, and then the FDA will need to review all those data in the ACIP. So I think the timeline would be by the end of the year, if the data look that it's efficacious and safe. The Moderna data down to, to age 12 was quite good. I showed that to you a couple weeks ago. It's very efficacious. There were very few side effects. They actually didn't see any uh, myocarditis, and so um, the Moderna data looked good down to 12.
0: Great comment here. Asymptomatic PCR positive incidental finding in fully vaccinated patient with very low contact risk profile. Do they actually have COVID? Should we start practic- practically start differentiating between simply PCR? Test positive clinical infection. We do this with other infections like TB and Lyme. I do recognize apples and oranges, but are similar practical significance. You
1: no, know, it's a good question. So if you look at the cruise ship, two positive immunized people, PCR positive, you know, thousand immunized, not PCR positive. Was there any transmission among immunized? Probably not. Could those vaccine immunized individuals who are PCR positive transmit to unimmunized? I do not. We simply don't know. We don't know whether that was the, the virus, because they had an immune response, was the virus ineffective and just sort of slowly, slightly replicating. We simply don't know the answer to that, and we do need to know that. We need to know, are the vaccine failure viral titers higher or lower? Could they transmit? Are they not able to transmit? At the moment, in my opinion, we probably need to assume that if you're breakthrough PCR positive and you're not ill but you were vaccinated, that you're asymptomatically infected and that the possibility of transmission is real so that is also the reason to dr salazar's point why in hospital environment and in the environment we're working we are still wearing masks even though the majority of us are immunized now also remember we have a huge unimmunized pediatric population so um, you know we, we we need to understand that it's, it's a very good question we do not yet have the answer and we need to figure
0: that out we have about six or seven questions that I will pass on to John to answer in, uh, via email. Again, John, thank you for a great presentation. Thank you all of you who uh, joined us today. We had uh, about 160 people uh, join the, the meeting today with great, great questions. Uh, please join us on Tuesday for the Research Grand Rounds. You'll hear some really interesting data about Kawasaki disease in uh, in the post-COVID or in the, COVID, in the COVID era. And other research presentations we will come back next Friday. John, thank you again, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you. Take care. Be safe. Bye-bye.